friends, welcome to the XD Podcast, a show that explores how design shapes the way we experience brands, products, services, and our everyday lives. As usual, I'm your host, Tony Dosat. Whether you're joining me for the first time or have come back for more, I want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. And if you find value in this show, I would be honored if you took a moment to share this episode, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening, or left a review. It's always greatly appreciated. And with that, what do you say we just jump right into the interview? Stephen Ray, what's up, dog? First of all, thank you again so much for being here. It's a Saturday. You've got a family. Dude, thanks for having me. I'm just a guy that's like saying stuff and wanted to have you out They're here. They're glad to have a break from me, I'm sure. <laughs> Man, do you have a cute kid. Thanks, brother. Um, aside from that, you're a smart guy. We've talked many times. We've hung out. And I was like, i got to have you on. Can you give a little background, what you do, how you got here? So kind of starting my career, I started in, in at an advertising agency as a graphic designer. And, you know, me and my buds, we were all wanting to, you know, we were, I think a lot, like a lot of people who have stayed in our industry, as long as like you and I have, we've stayed this long because we like learning and we like growing and uh, exploring where we go and, and, and trying new things. So at the time... I was working for this very small advertising agency and they had all the pretty, they had the pretty office. Really, you know, I got Bean sold. Bags. I got sold. Yeah, I mean, it was that kind of place where, with the great lighting that designers love. And mm-hmm. Anyway, it was, the, it was a great experience because it was one of the worst places I could have ever worked. <laughs> and uh, what I realized actually during, you know, while I worked there, because I was not wise enough to just move on that quickly. I was like, I have a job. I need You're to right. keep a job, right? Making like a sweet, like 30 grand a year thinking, like, <laughs> I was like, this is, this is all right. So I started putting together all these things that, you know, I will never do <laughs> when I get to the point when I have a team and I'm running a company. Cause you know, I, I definitely fell in that group of people that's like, I'm going to do my, I'm going to do my thing one day. And so I basically, and, it, and there was another a uh, coworker of mine, uh, Amanda Evans. <laughs> so she and I would always, you know, at lunch we'd we'd say, <laughs> "We're going to write a book. We're going to write this book of what not to do when you're running a design agency." So I eventually leave there and I go to this this next place, and I'd started doing some freelance for this next place, and they treated me really well. I was getting paid to do freelance really well, and they're like, "Come on board full time." It's like sweet. As soon as I was a full-time employee, I started getting treated not the same. Mm. So I was like, wow, I thought the last place was so bad, and now this place is kind of worse in, in some regards. Like both places, there was a lot of value. You know, there was great designers that I worked with, a lot of great relationships, a lot of great, you know, learnings. But from a leadership standpoint, there were some things that were very clear to me that I didn't, didn't work for me, didn't seem to be working for the people that I was around, when you had people constantly quitting, crying, <laughs> things like that. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, that book continues. Um, then I kind of went to the next place. And the next place was great. It was one of the, it was the first time I'd had an opportunity. So now that I'm not talking poorly about places, <laughs> uh, I can mention names. So I went to go. a company <laughs> called Telligent. 
And this was great because it was still pretty small. And I had started using uh, their software at my previous company. And you could do anything with it, but it was this really poor experience. And so that was actually, interestingly, I heard you and Brandon you know, talking about he didn't even know what a user experience was. Yeah. Like, Neither did I. But I knew that this could be better. So finagled my way out of a position where I had to no-compete with the company that I was, you know, ended up going to work for. But this is where I started my more technical career path, and it was awesome. It was the environment. It was really a startup environment. I think at the time it was probably about 60, maybe 60 people, and it was that type of thing where people didn't leave at 5 o'clock. You know, they either kept working or, you know, on on actual client work or you know, internal product work, or they would team up together and work on projects. And then that's, this is the first opportunity I had to work on like a hackathon. Mm. It was, and because I was one of the few designers, you know, I was highly sought after. And so it was this really great experience. And then I, I got to see things shift um, because basically they had some new leadership come in to improve the, the value of the company um, as, as things do when they grow and you know, people start looking at things from like an acquisition standpoint. And so I got to see the, the culture that was really amazing shift overnight. And then people leaving, you know, now it was important that we had all the lights on in every office. Uh, so all these things that really don't matter in regards to making great products, right? So the book continues. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> let, me, let me pull out that old dusty book that I thought I was done with continue writing down notes of things that I think are not conducive to the type of company that I think people really want to be a part of. So around that time, you know, myself and uh, a good friend of mine, Anthony Armendariz, we were chatting and I didn't have any kids at the time and he didn't either. And we were part of a group of buddies who would always talk about like, man, we should really start a thing. We should, we should do our own thing. So Leftelligent, on good terms, you know, worked with the product team there and they were a bunch of great people. But it was my time to try a thing and I felt confident that I was, you know, good enough at what I did that if this didn't work out, I could go get a job somewhere else. It may not be great, but from a money standpoint, I feel like I'll be okay. So Anthony and I, you know, ran a company for a handful of years um, before uh, he decided to move in a different direction and try some other things. Um, I tried to run the company for a while on my own, but we had kind of set it up as a company uh, for par two partners to run. So I wasn't, ha I wasn't having a ton of fun. Uh, it was a lot of work. And then I had met the, you know, so Dialexa at the time, which is the company that I'm a part of now, was just a few people, uh, a few, two founders and a handful of developers. And I would see them at this place called Cohabitat, uh, which is like one of the first co-working spaces in Dallas. Oh, Yeah. We would see each other at these parties, but, you know, I was maybe one-eighth networking. The remainder of that was just, you know, for me drinking. <laughs> so I didn't always do the best networking. So it took meeting a few times uh, before I realized that these guys did something that I needed, which was development. So I meet the Dialexa guys, and we chat for probably a year trying to figure out a project to work on, and the stars just weren't aligning. And then finally we get a, a chance to work on some stuff together. They mentioned the idea of joining forces, and so for about seven years, I've been the uh, head of research and design at Dialexa. And or what's your role? Let's start there. So my role now really is more of, <laughs> more of an enabler. Like I want to... 
So it's been an interesting transition. This is a conversation that comes up with, you know, my team that's going from full-time execution to now, you know, management and understanding that there's a huge amount of value in not being 100% executing when you're starting to transition. Like you've now you have all these learnings, all this knowledge and value now starting to multiply that within the people that report to you, right? And that's kind of what I am fully now. So fortunately, I still will uh, jump in projects from time to time, I'm, you know. But really my role now, I've put a lot of thought into the type of company, kind of going back to that, what I, what I would never do. So now I'm fortunate enough to be over one of the divisions of our company. It's really split between research and design and engineering and engineering has software and hardware and uh, quality engineering and we do have a, a strategy practice you know so now I'm in this fortunate position where I have an opportunity to really do whatever I want right as long as I don't burn the house down <laughs> I don't know what I've done but I've managed to cultivate a, a team of people that um, have embraced uncertainty and are willing to try things and are willing to be open about things not always working out the way they expected. We started this, uh, we'll, we'll have themes from time to time at Dialexa, <laughs> maybe all the time. But one of them within the design team right now is this idea of like absolute transparency. And so it's really the idea that we, look, some people are going to be amazing presenters. Some people suck at presenting. I am a little closer to that sort of suck side <laughs> than I am the amazing side. And what makes, it, what makes it harder when you suck at something is when you don't want to admit it. You don't want people to know. You know, you want to keep it to yourself. Man, that makes it way harder to, to grow at that. But if I was able to say, Tony, dude, you're like an actor. I suck. I suck at presenting. I feel like as an actor, you probably have some techniques you could help me with. Boom. You would probably be like, you know, if you're on my team, at least, you would be like, yeah, dude, I probably, why, why don't we get together? Let me see what you've got. Let me give you some feedback. But if you didn't know and I was trying to keep it to myself, I'm not going to get that wisdom from you. Does this go into the T-shape versus V-shape team methodology? Yeah, I think it may a little. So we came up with this idea of the V-shape um, really because I think that if you're in our field of work, you need to have the ability to, on your own, meet with a client, understand what they need. You need to come up with an idea of how you think you can solve that solution and you need to make it presentable, right? I'm not saying you have to be the master researcher, the master you know, uh, interface designer, but the term user experience is kind of a, a broad term. Yeah. <laughs> so we just say general user experience means that you can understand the needs, create and develop a presentable solution that that client should be happy with right okay so now our v really came from i started having people on my team that were really strong researchers and maybe they weren't as good at that interface design but it no i you know and this could change in the future but i've never wanted to silo things out i see some companies um there's a company downtown where i would get uh recruits or i would get people that would come by for interviews and they would talk about we would look at their portfolio and they'd be like, well, I did this one thing, but so-and-so did the research. Somebody else did the interaction design. Somebody did the wireframes. I did the visual design and then somebody else did the prototyping. I'm like, wow, 
to me, that's not the way I want to run this thing. Because I feel like if I were to take you as an individual, I couldn't put you on a project without like some massive team or something. Sure. Um, or I'm going to put you with someone else and then they're going to have a huge burden because they're going to have to do everything except for the one thing that you can do. Uh, and it doesn't mean that that person couldn't quickly pick up those other things. I guess all I'm getting at is that I think that you should have that full package and then you should have a strength in something that helps develop that, you know, general user experience uh, ability. You know, I know some of your previous guests have had this, you know, formal education around ethnographic, you know, ethnographic research. Yeah. And man, that is awesome. And I definitely want to catch up with some of your, oh, now that we have that, we have you in uh, common, I'm going to catch up with some of your other guests. But, um, you know, m- most of us have not had that, but I think largely designers are so willing to try a thing and design how they want to do, basically how they want to get the outcome that in, uh, a trained ethnographic researcher would do. Like that, we know that that's what they're trying to get. We don't know all those things. We're going to dive in, learn as you know, learn some stuff. Yeah, there's definitely some things that we don't know that would be great to know, I'm sure. But maybe all those things aren't necessary for every project. But we do the best we can to get the outcome that we're trying to get as quickly as possible, so we can start creating something. So you were talking about when when you were at these other agencies, mm-hmm. the book that you would write, what not to do, right? <laughs> yeah. So now that you are employee number four at Dialexa, I mean, you guys are really thriving. So right now, have you looked back in your mental book and said, I can do a gut check and go, okay, I need to, I need to whip it around and this is the experience I need to design for my current team in business? Uh, well, that's a great question. I will tell you that I went through a phase where um, I wasn't always being myself because there was a period of time where I felt like I had to be this like, super intellectual sounding thought designer. Yeah. And, um, boy, all that did was make me less and less confident. Mm. And, uh, and it, it really affected my ability to sound like an intellectual or a smart person. Right. Because I was, you know, I was trying too hard to be perceived as something that I wasn't, I couldn't, I couldn't own it. You know, I finally recognized that and realized that, you know, I think I'm going to experiment with, just being myself and putting some nonsense into the conversation and trying to make this more fun. Because I, I really like to smile and laugh. I think I think most people do, but I think sometimes we get caught up in this like, sort of like this corporateness of some of the, you know, companies that we work with or whatever and or work at. Once I started doing that, I realized that, oh yeah, you, actually these are just people you know, yeah. They have kids. They like to laugh. They like that same stupid movie that you're ashamed to tell people that you like. <laughs> the other, on the other side of that, is having the ability to somewhat transform into the audience that you need to resonate with. I think there's a huge amount of value that um, I've created for myself by having the ability to speak the language of the person that I'm with. It's not to the point where I'm trying to act totally like a person that I'm not. But it is understanding the right words and the right language to use at the right time in order to resonate with that person, to build that relationship. And over time, that you can break that down a little bit and kind of just be your kind of, I think, neutral self. Yeah. Uh, but there is, a, there is a starting point. Yeah, you have to understand your audience, right? And so there is a little bit of that intent behind not being the neutral you, I guess. What's interesting is you go to meetings and you start 
looking at all the titles of the people, it's some big business sometimes, and you start thinking, man, this meeting is expensive for their time, for your time, et cetera, et cetera. So it starts adding all this undue pressure when you start thinking of things like that. And then you start thinking, okay, I've got to be like just on fire. I've got to be the expert, the thought leader like we were talking about. And it creates anxiety. And that's why we're going to get the job done. You know, we're all in there to get the job done, what's best for the user, hopefully, by the end of the day. But if we can make it a little light sometimes mm-hmm. and realize, like you said, these are people. These are human beings. Some of them have kids. Some of them have dogs. Some of them got pet iguanas. You know, just... <laughs> yeah. I know. I just know relate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, honestly, <clears throat> that's one of the things that is really, you know, sometimes I'll call that one of our differentiators. Like, you know, I think I think dialects is really fun to work with. You know, we want to have opportunities, you know, we want to create those opportunities when we're with our clients to go out, you know, go out to dinner, you know, go out for drinks, maybe have a little bit of a social life. Uh, it's axe not throwing, all, axe throwing, haven't actually done that one yet. It seems like it's hot right now. Yeah. And I, I want to do it. Um, but you know, uh, it's not always just about the work. And that's what I think is really important too. When you can get on the same page and at least in terms of Hey, we want to get this. We want this thing to work. We now is not just Dialexa. We is client in Dialexa, and actually, there's some even some intent behind the types of language that we use when we talk about the projects that we're working on. It's not your project anymore. It's it's our project. We're in this together, and we're truly like we want to see success because we want the next project. We don't want the next project yeah. because we were able to bait you into the biggest project up front. Some of the projects we start. To get our toe in the door with some of these bigger companies is just to hey show you that you know what we are able to do with a timeline and limitations that we have. One of the things that I I sort of talk about with experience design as a whole is thinking outside of the screen. So at Dialexa, what have you guys done as far as service design, as far as industrial design? Are you guys heading in those areas, or have you leaned in those sort of sectors before? Well. You know, we're doing a lot more service design than than we ever have before. It's one of those things where you use it with the right company the right way, and then it all clicks, mm. and you go, now I know exactly how we can use this for different types of clients. And so we've been doing a lot of service blueprint design. Uh, James has actually been really heading up that. Uh, we, have a, we have a class you know, that we uh, do every week. Uh, which is really interesting that a lot of our engineers show up to. Oh, um, nice. Yeah, so it's really cool. So we're doing a lot there. You know, you said industrial design. Um, we do some. That is not uh, one of the, you know, primary uh, service offerings that we have, just because hardware is just a different beast. On a little side note, there's a billionaire that owns the Mavericks that you did something with. Uh, yeah. So this was actually before this was back when but I was, this is, this is, a, this is maybe a few years ago, this is 10, like 12, eight. 15, 20, this is, yeah, 72. This is, like, this is about eight years ago. Yeah. So his name is Mark Cuban. Yeah. So now let's, okay. So we don't have to talk about it, by the way. <laughs> it's fine. Um, this was one of those things where you, you try a thing and, um, you know, it doesn't succeed and it's fine. And you let it go and you don't relish on it for the rest of your life. So myself and a, a friend of mine, Ray Hernandez, we 
we had this idea. We were actually, I mean, it was one of those stories where we literally were uh, jogging one day. And it was really hot, and we didn't have water with us. And uh, we did see a like a vending machine. And I mean, it was very this generic idea. I mean, we'd been talking about some things around this sort of space about something that we wanted to create and this was kind of the day that it clicked it's like oh this idea that we've been talking about this is a this is all coming together now if we had an app that was you know keep in mind this is a long time ago this is before google pay apple pay everything oh, yeah. pay so we're like wouldn't it be amazing if we had an, an app where you could just go up and basically just you know get a, at the time it was a free vend a free vend right and the way that we initially started that was through this idea of like social currency. So you would go up, and the first version of it was that you would go up, and uh, we so we actually created hardware. Um, it was a bolt on, and it bolted onto almost any vending machine since like 1970 or something like that. Wow! Anytime we would say that, some guy, some old guy with a long beard would pull a vending vending machine out and go, "Oh yeah, doesn't and, work." And it wouldn't work. One, yeah. It's like thanks, bro, but um. We did create this thing, and, 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 and Ray ran with it through multiple versions, but uh, basically we started with something that you would post uh, something uh, on your social timeline. It, we started with Facebook at the time, so it's like, hey, hey guys, I just got this free vend at, you know, Chuck's Pizza, amazing, or whatever. It was kind of like this advertising kind of idea. But then that actually, um, once Ray took over, this was around the time... Um, you know, I was ending 39 Argyle and uh, merging into Dialexa, and uh, Ray took that over, and he had moved to San Francisco and turned it into an actual payment platform. Uh, it was just, we might have been a little too early. I don't know what it was. We, it never really quite got off the ground, but we did make some, we did make a cool thing. I like to end every interview the same way, and it's with a question that is, what non-digital thing that you own has had the greatest impact on your life or means the most to you and why? So I think there's two things because one of them you, you might just laugh about. So at Ikea, there's this $1.50 frother. It's just a little piece of metal with a little thing oh, on yeah. the end of it. Oh yeah. And it just spins. And so I've gotten way into like mixing stuff into like drinks or whatever, whether you're going down the MCT <laughs> oil path or whatever it is, um, you know. So the thing, the thing is that it's just a thing that does its job so well, <laughs> and it's only a, like a dollar fifty. Uh, I don't know. I started using it in the office, and then other people started buying them in the office. So I don't know. We, we just one. like mixing stuff. Yeah. I don't know. And the thing is, you could go and you. You know, it's a dollar fifty at IKEA. That's part of the. That's part of what makes it so great. You don't care. It's not like you can go buy them for fifteen dollars and they do the same thing. Right. But uh, so that's the one you might. We'll forget about that one. Okay. <laughs> Fair. So, what actually is continually stuck with me for about ten years now is there is a Mead notepad that is like four inches tall. And like three inches wide or five inches tall, three inches wide, something like that. It's very small. The spiral bind is on the top. So I've always, always have had problems utilizing to-do lists in a way that I can stick with. 
um, in a way where it doesn't overwhelm me because I'll use to-do list as like my dumping ground for everything that I ever want to do in the future of my life. So with this little mead pad, I basically will write out what I want to get done that day. The trick is, you, you know, one page is one day. So it's not a list that you keep forever. You flip it to the next page. Whatever you didn't finish the day before, you write it on the next page. Okay? So if you keep writing that same to-do over and over, it's a good, it's sort of a good indicator that, okay, I don't, I'm never going to do this, or maybe it's actually not that important. Mm. So then you can, you can basically take those things and just start writing them in the back. It's like maybe one day, maybe. That's really worked out well for me. The other thing that I like about that is I get the gratification of like marking through it. I get gratification of seeing what all I was able to accomplish that day. And so, yeah, I mean, it's very, you know, very basic, simple thing, but I've done that for about 10 years. Then I'll kind of drop off and don't use it for a while. And I'll try to, you know, use a digital to-do application, but I always find myself coming back to using that method. And I think that for me works really well. There's nothing like writing it seeing it, having it in your hands, yeah. that something like an app or a Kindle will never be able to do. Absolutely. And some people will always gravitate toward the, the tech, but others, it's that tangible thing that you can always just have. Yeah, absolutely. I will even have grocery lists. Uh-huh. I'll write everything down if I'm going through the aisles mm-hmm. and I pick something up. I will write it down and then cross it out. Yeah, I, I can dig it. I do that with... The same thing sometimes with the to-do list, you know? Yeah. It's like, okay, it's a thing I did. I need to go ahead and, you know, document it. Yeah. (laughs) There's something there. Thanks again, Stephen. Absolutely, man. Thank you very much for having me. I'm going to have your LinkedIn link on the show notes so people can stalk you. Sounds uh, good. I'm excited. Take up your time. Hell yeah. Thanks again, brother. All right, brother. Take it easy. And with that, we will call it a week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, be sure to share it with your friends, family, or coworkers. As always, you can find the show notes and full transcript at xdpodcast.com or stalk me on Instagram at xdpodcast. I can't wait to have you back next week, but until then, friends, stay curious. The XD Podcast is part of XD Media LLC and is produced and edited by me, Tony Dosat. Hosting and publication of the podcast is through Buzzsprout. Thank you.